We will now listen to the confession of the church, um, a summary of God's Word in Lord's Day 3. And it begins with this question, did God then create man so wicked and perverse? No, on the contrary, God created man good and in His image. That is in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might rightly know God his Creator, heartily love Him and live with Him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify Him. From where then did man's depraved nature come? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in Christ, today in Lord's Day 3, the church speaks about what it means to be a human being. You might think that's obvious to everybody what a human being is, but it's actually remarkably difficult for secular man, for instance, to speak about what exactly is unique about human beings. If you listen to secular man today, the standard opinion is that human beings are basically an advanced primate. That's all we are. We're just mammals with a little bit bigger brain than other mammals. But for the rest, there's nothing special about humans. And some people go very far in this, this doctrine of, non, of not being special. Some people, people would even say that there's nothing inherently more glorious about a human than a rat. There's actually nothing more inherently glorious about a human than a spider that you see spinning its web in the fall. Secular man has no ability to give an account of the special nature of human beings. In fact, the, the very fact that there is a Lord's Day in the Heidelberg Catechism devoted to the question of what is man uh, tells us that humans are unique. Because what do we find in Lord's Day 3? We find human beings reflecting on what it means to be human. And I can tell you that that is not something other creatures do. You don't have spiders reflecting on what it means to be spiders. You don't have dogs reflecting on what it means to be dogs. And even animals with incredible intelligence like dolphins, they don't have a philosophical association in which they hold regular meetings to discuss what it means to be a dolphin. Well, the animals that we see in the world with all their abilities and variety and uniqueness... They operate by instinct. They just operate by instinct. The dog isn't thinking about what it means to be a dog. He's only thinking about that squirrel that's running across the deck and he wants to catch it. And the cat isn't thinking about what it means to be a cat. She just wants to catch the mouse. And the spider is only interested in the fly that it wants to get into its web. They, they live by instinct. They eat by instinct. They sleep by instinct and they don't reflect on what it means to be what they are. But humans do. Human beings are always thinking about deep matters. Maybe you can get away with not doing that for a part of your life. Maybe you did this week. Maybe you didn't spend any time this week thinking about what it really means to be a human. But you know what? Someday you're going to. Someday you are going to think about the deep questions of life. You won't be able to get away from them. Questions like, 
what am I anyway? And what am I supposed to be doing here in this world anyway? And what is the purpose of my life? And, and why is there so much trouble in the world? Why is there so much bad news and hardly any good news? A lot of questions come up in our minds in the quiet times of our lives and maybe in the turbulent times too. And you know, getting an answer to those questions is actually a very urgent matter. It's very urgent for us to get answers. Because without satisfying answers to these foundational questions, it's really hard to get any momentum going in your life. Without answers, eventually things start to come apart at the seams. Life gets frayed at the edges. And work becomes drudgery, and relationships become misery, and the future isn't something to anticipate anymore, but something to dread. Again, speaking to secular people and reading books by secular authors, um, novelists, playwrights, philosophers, when you read their books and when you listen to their music, and when you look at their art, you see that the main secular answer to such questions is, nobody knows. Nobody knows why we are here. All we can say about ourselves as human beings is that we are unplanned cosmic accidents. That is what your secular peers are teaching their children in public schools. Whether it's in literature class or it's in biology class, the children of your community are being taught that nobody planned them, there is no higher purpose to their lives, and they are merely a, a temporary conglomeration of molecules that will stick together for 70 or 80 years and then die and dissipate. And nobody can say what it all means. Nobody knows what it means. In fact, most modern philosophers and playwrights and novelists and cultural um, workers will tell you the search for meaning is futile. There is no meaning. And any meaning you, you come up with is arbitrary. It's just arbitrary. And you can make it up, and if it comforts you, good for you, but it's not transcendently real. It's just something you have created as an illusion to make life a little bit easier for you. And it's not surprising, therefore, that when people become atheists, they go through times of great despair. Because if we are just unplanned accidents, thrown out by time, and if there really is nothing to say about reality beyond what we can see and touch and look at in our microscopes or through our microscopes or our telescopes, if there's nothing beyond all of that, and if death is the absolute end of all things, then what's the point of it all? And I remember a person in my high school class who was very intensely deliberate about pursuing with her teachers in my public school what the meaning of it all is. And they always pushed the questions aside and they said those were religious questions and we don't deal with religious questions in school. But she persisted in looking for meaning. She was determined to find meaning and when she didn't find any meaning, she went to the barn one night and hung herself because she could not live in a world without meaning and her public school failed to give her a sense of what that meaning might be. Well, as Christians, we believe that it's impossible for human beings to understand themselves 
without an external reference point. We can't understand ourselves just by looking at ourselves. We can't understand ourselves just by looking within our own hearts and scrutinizing our own minds and becoming more knowledgeable about our own biology and so forth. In order to understand ourselves, we need to be told by God. We can't understand ourselves without the help of God. And so here in Lord's Day 3, the church speaks about God's teaching concerning what it means to be human. And we will consider that theme this afternoon, what it means to be human. And we'll consider, first of all, our glorious origin as God's image. And secondly, the corruption of God's image. And thirdly, the hope of restoration. So first, then, our glorious origin as the image of God. What makes people special, God tells us in Genesis 1 and elsewhere, is that He made human beings in His image and after His likeness. You could say in a certain way that humans are godlike. They're not God, they're not divine, but they are in specific ways godlike. That's what it means that they were created as God's image. It's an amazing thing to say about yourself. Humans are godlike. You are by creation design a godlike creature. You are designed by God like no other creature, not even very smart primates like chimpanzees. You are designed like no other creature to reflect God, reflect who He is and what He's like. Now, of course, there are some things about God that are completely um, special to God, and we cannot mirror God in some ways. For example, God is almighty, and we are not almighty. And God is everywhere present, and we're not. And God knows everything, and we only know something. So there are very clear lines of distinction between humans and God, and yet the Bible is very insistent on saying that there is uh, an analogy between God and people. One scholar that I read a few years ago actually was in his commentary on Ecclesiastes that I found this expression. He said, humans are a finite replica of the infinite God. How's that for a paradox? Humans are a finite replica of the infinite God who made heaven and earth. So there are real analogies. And this afternoon, I want to draw to your attention how these analogies between God and, and humans have to do with family likeness. You know, boys and girls, when, when people get to know you, they can often say about you, you look just like your mom or you just look like, you're just like your dad or, or you look just like your grandpa, your grandma, even great-grandpa, great-grandma. They're coming through in the generations. So children do look like their fathers and mothers. And that is kind of what the Bible is talking about when it says that we are God's image, because we are His children. We're His children. We're children of God. The Bible starts off with telling us about our identity as sons and daughters of God, and God made His sons and daughters to be like Him. Now, not physically, because God is an invisible spiritual being. But in very specific ways, God made us to be like Himself. If you want an interesting verse in this regard, I can point you to uh, Genesis 5, verse 1 and 2 and following. This is a written account of Adam's line. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. 
He created them male and female, and He blessed them. And when they were created, He called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Did you notice exactly the same language is used there in relation to human children? Adam has kids. They are the image and likeness of Adam. God made Adam as his image and likeness. He made Eve as his image and likeness. The point is, it's a family likeness. We're children of God, and we are created to reflect our Heavenly Father. And because we're created to be His children, we're also capable of having a conscious relationship with Him, just like your kids can have a conscious relationship with you. They can love you. They can know you. They can experience you. They can say thank you. They can get mad at you. They can be frustrated with you. They can do all kinds of relational things in regard to you because they're your kids. And it's very interesting that the catechism in this Lord's Day about the image of God uses a lot of relational words. Notice them again in, in the Lord's Day. It says that we are created in the image of God, that is to know Him and to love Him and to live with Him. Those are all relational words. And they communicate the idea of children living with their parent. Children know their father and mother. They love their father and mother. They live with their father and mother. And the Bible says that's what humans were created to do. They're part of God's family. They were created to be in the family of God, to know God, to love God, to live with God. It's a very special bond between a parent and a child, whether the child is a biological child or a foster child or an adopted child. There's a very special bond between a father and a mother and a child. It's a bond like no other. Anyone who's ever stood beside a crib of a newborn child will know that this is an utterly unique bond. Uh, you know, you can be close with your dog. You can have a very fine relationship with your dog, and the dog is very happy to see you when you come home. And you can have a real nice relationship with your horse, and the horse comes trotting over when you want to give it an apple, and it's very friendly, and you can ride it. But there's nothing like a relationship with your child. And that's what makes humans special, you see, that God created them in His image as His children who reflect Him in order that they might be capable of a living, conscious relationship of love and communion with Him. That's a defining thing about humans. They are His image made to know God and love God. That's our glorious origin. Now, there's another thing that comes out in Genesis that's very striking. When, when you read Genesis, uh, just freshly, just, just read the whole thing and read it freshly, you can see that humans are portrayed there as the crown of God's creation work. It's like God created the whole world and God had already and then he made humans to live in this astonishing world that he had made just completely suitable for human life. And then God gives these humans, who are his children after all, a very special role that's unlike the role of dogs and dolphins and spiders and every other creature you can imagine. God gives these humans a very special role of representing him in his creation. And specifically, ruling over his creation in his name. The image of God language of Genesis 1 is connected with other words like subdue and have dominion and rule. So whenever we think of image of God, we can think of how we 
are, are God's children, and we are God's children given a special role within creation of ruling creation. God put Adam and Eve in charge. God said, I want to rule over all the works of my hands, and, and I could do that without you. I could do that of my own almighty power all by myself. I don't need you to rule over the works of my hands, but I choose to use you, Adam and Eve, and all your posterity to rule over the works of my hands. That's how I have arranged the world. Again, if you want an analogy, think of a, a parent-run business. Think of a father who has a business. And he decides to leave his business in, in the hands of his children. He says, from now on, I'm, I'm entrusting the farm to you guys. I'm going to leave my plumbing business to you guys. I'm handing over the accounting firm to you guys. You're going to run it from now on. I'm leaving you in charge. And just like a father might give a government of the family business over to his children with the expectation that they would grow it and develop it and bring it even to greater levels. So God put Adam and Eve in the world as his image with the mandate of expanding his kingdom. If you think about it, the Garden of Eden was pretty small. The Garden of Eden was a small garden, an enclosed garden. Um, you might ask, how many acres was it? Well, I don't know, but if someone told me that the Garden of Eden was 10 acres, I wouldn't be surprised. If someone told me it was five acres, I wouldn't be surprised. If someone told me it was one acre, I wouldn't be surprised. It was an enclosed garden you know, in the land of, of Eden. And Adam and Eve lived in that garden, and they exercised communion with God in that beautiful garden. That garden was really a, a temple. That's what it was. It was a place where God manifested himself and his kingly glory to his children, Adam and Eve. He met with them every afternoon, and they worshiped, and they heard his word, and then they went off to fulfill their mandate. And what was their mandate? Their mandate wasn't only to take care of that temple garden. Their mandate was quite a bit bigger. God said, subdue the earth. Now, you might think, that's weird. How, how could there be anything to subdue when the world was perfect? But there were things to, to subdue. There was a whole realm outside of paradise. And God wanted to use Adam and Eve to bring to, bring to kingdom glory creation, which he had established in the beginning. You might say it this way. God's plan was that that temple garden would grow, that it wouldn't just be one acre or ten acres or whatever it was or a or hundred but that eventually that garden temple would, would grow through the industrious labor of Adam and Eve to encompass the entire planet so that the whole world would become the dwelling place of God. The whole world would be filled with his glory. Every inch of planet Earth filled with the glorious presence and the glorious rule of God. That's what God wanted Adam and Eve to be involved in. It was a big project. It was a project that would encompass millennia. Just think, Adam and Eve were two, and God said, you, you need to go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and take my image everywhere to every corner of the planet and subdue the whole earth so that it becomes this living, beautiful testament to my glory. 
Can you imagine how that would have worked in a perfect world? Can you imagine uh, all the, what are we now, seven and a half billion people? I don't even know, I haven't checked lately. Imagine seven and a half billion, eight, let's say eight billion people on planet Earth right now. Can you imagine how awesome it would be if every single human being on this planet had one soul dominating passion that God would be exalted as king in whatever we do? Think of a human race congregation united in love for God. Think of a human race using all the colossal gifts that God has entrusted to the human race. And once in a while, we need to pause and just reflect on how astounding our human gifts are. What humans do is truly phenomenal. And if you say one day, there's no way humans will ever be able to do that, well, I advise you strongly not to ever say that because probably they will. Probably they will figure a way to do it. When my grandmother was little, they said, she said, there is no way humans will ever be able to go to the moon. Well, they did. And now we might say, well, they'll never be able to go to Mars. Well, maybe they will. Well, they'll never be able to do interstellar travel. Well, who knows? Give it enough time and ingenuity. Who knows what humans are capable of? Humans are capable of phenomenal things. We should, we should be staggered by what humans do. Now imagine humans using all those gifts and saying, we want to take those gifts and we want them to advance not me and not my glory and not my status and not my power and my kingdom and my empire, but we want to take all these gifts and we want them to expand God's kingdom. If you want a bit of a sense of that project, imagine people sailing long ago from from Portugal or Spain or, or Holland, for that matter, or from France to the New World of the Americas. I read a biography this last summer about Samuel de Champlain, one of the first French explorers and settlers in Canada, an extraordinary man. Well, when Champlain went to America, he was partially driven just by the sheer spirit of adventure, no doubt about that, but he had a higher motive as well. His motive was to advance the kingdom of France, to expand the empire of France, to make France even more glorious than it already was, to give it more territory, to extend the empire. And the same was true of the Portuguese and Spanish and the Dutch and other empires that were built in those days. So Champlain went to America with that conscious knowledge, I'm going here on behalf of the king, going here on behalf of the king, and I'm going here with a mandate to extend the kingdom. And that's exactly what God gave Adam and Eve the mandate to do in paradise. Go into my creation and exploit all of its potential and develop its undeveloped state. See, God didn't say to Adam and Eve in paradise, look, I've made the world perfect, and I want you guys all to preserve it now like a national park and don't touch anything and don't do anything, and don't dig into anything, and, and don't disrupt any waterways, and don't do anything at all to disturb this perfect world. No, God said just the exact opposite. He said, go out there and subdue it, and have dominion over it, and develop it, and bring out its potential, and build up a world of civilization to the glory of your king. You march off beyond Eden, and you plant my flag on all those territories beyond Eden, and you keep planting those flags further and further and further, 
until the entire world is filled with my glorious rule. That was God's mandate to Adam and Eve, that they would consciously and deliberately build a civilization that truly was solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. When you look at the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, if you had the privilege of seeing an original folio, you could see on the top of every page of every manuscript of music that this amazing man made, the letters SDG stands for Soli Deo Gloria. He made his music very consciously to the glory of God as a confessing Lutheran with whom we have astounding spiritual kinship. Well, that, was, that was humans' jobs. That was a job of humans in the beginning to get out there, to use all those amazing gifts and to build a world for the glory of the Father. But it didn't work out that way, did it? What happened instead is the king's sons and daughters rebelled against him. They decided they didn't want to work for the king anymore. It would be like Champlain coming over to America and then making a secret deal with the king of Spain instead and deciding to work from now on, not for the king who sent him, but for the competitor, the king of Spain, who also had his expanding empire. And that's what humans did. They didn't want to work solely Deo Gloria, and they wanted to work instead for their own glory. And the result of that rebellion was catastrophic, and you're feeling the effects to this day in your personal lives. Because as the Catechism says, our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Adam became corrupt, Eve became corrupt, their children were corrupt. Adam and his children had sinful hearts and sinful ways. They didn't have, to be, didn't have to be taught how to sin. The sin was in them. They became sinners in the fall of their parents. And Adam and his children didn't get to start over. You know, maybe some people think God should have arranged the world that way. Adam and Eve blew it. Well, let's give the kids a chance. See how they do. Maybe they'll do better than father and mother did. So put them back in the garden and see how they do. Round two of the human race. But it didn't go that way. God said no. In Adam's, Adam's situation and status was hidden, the, the status of the whole world. As an old reader used in America for many, many years, the McGuffey reader says, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. So Adam fell, and he was a representative, and so we all fell with him. God made us righteous and holy, but that's no longer what we are. We're not righteous and holy. What are we instead? Well, if people look at us today, do they see God's righteousness and holiness? Not by nature. This is what Paul says about humans apart from grace in Ephesians 4. He says, we are darkened in our understanding. We are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to the hardness of our hearts. We have become callous and have given ourselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. See, we're still humans, and we still have amazing gifts, but what do we do now? Instead of using them for the king, we use them against the king. So when we look at unbelieving people, we can still see the image of God in them, absolutely. We still see creational gifts that God entrusted to the human race, but people are using those gifts not for the Lord, but against the Lord, in fact, for his enemies. We're not working as a human race to expand God's kingdom anymore. We're not working to magnify God's glory 
or working to magnify our own glory. Just think of Nebuchadnezzar. We heard about him in Alder Grove this morning. King Nebuchadnezzar, what a proud tyrant he was. Nebuchadnezzar was absolutely full of himself, full of his own pride. He was building a massive kingdom, but it was the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, and God had nothing to do with it. It was all about Nebuchadnezzar's glory. That's what all human empires do. Hitler wasn't concerned about building an empire to God's glory. It's all about his glory and the, the glory of the German Reich. If you want an analogy again, think of a father who entrusts his children with responsibility in the family business. He wants them to grow the business. He gives them the funding they need. He gives them the training. He gives them the resources. He gives them the room to grow. But instead, the younger generation goes rogue on dad, and they exclude him, and they don't want to work for him anymore. They don't want, to want him to have anything to do with their business anymore. They want it for themselves. And that's what humans have done. We said, God, stay away. This is our world now, and we want to do things our way, and we want to build a kingdom for us. So the question remains then, finally, given how bad things have become, is there any hope of restoration? Well, the gospel tells us, congregation, that God did not fail in His plan. God, in His amazing grace and mercy, what did He do? He reached out to His rogue children who had rebelled against Him, and He brought them back to Himself. He even renewed His relationship with them and established a covenant with them again, just as there had been a covenant in creation, and now is a covenant of grace based on forgiveness and God's mercy. God took Adam and Eve back into His service and said, yes, you sinned greatly in rebelling against Me, but I'm restoring you to a position in relation to Me. I'm restoring you as My children. I'm taking you back as My children in My grace. And Taking you back as my children means I'm also reinstating you in your original task. I made you my image to subdue the earth and have dominion over it, and I'm giving that job back to you now. And when we see the Old Testament unfolding, we see that God eventually gave His people a new temple again. Just as there had been a temple in paradise, He gave them a new temple. And the people of God can meet with God there in the temple. They could commune with God they would hear God's word in the temple. And then what happened after that? Well, they would go home. They would go home to the towns and villages of Judea. They would go up to Samaria and to their towns and villages there. And what would they do? What was their task? Well, their task was to live out in their towns and villages in the place where God had put them to live out the kingdom commands that they had heard in worship. Because in worship, they heard the Word of God. In the Old Testament, that meant primarily the law, the, the Torah, you could say, um, Genesis to Deuteronomy. That was what the people mostly heard in worship. They heard the Torah, and the Torah, the word Torah simply means teaching. So they heard the teaching of the king, and that, that teaching was meant to be, be, be prescriptive for all of life. So they would go back into their farms, their businesses, their homes, their families, their marriages, their local politics, their local struggles, and it would be their job there to live out the kingdom vision that they had heard 
in the temple. And so the idea that God had was that in Israel, even though Israel is just a small country, in Israel at least there would be a small beginning of what he had intended from the beginning. In the beginning, God said, go out and have dominion, subdue the earth, build up a righteous culture, civilization. And now in Israel, God is saying, this is where I want my renewed kingdom to be established. This is going to be the the beachhead for a new renewed kingdom. But it didn't go very well because the people of Israel kept acting like Adam and Eve. When you read the prophets, you see that Israelites were always acting like Adam and Eve. And you know what that meant? They did not listen. They did not listen to the word of the king. They did not listen. They did not practice the kingly lifestyle. And so God, in the fullness of time, took stronger measures, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to bear the sin of the world and to renew his people. You see, to be a worker for God's kingdom, to be somebody who's working for God and His glory, something has to happen to you. You need to be born again. What does that mean, to be born again? Well, it means you receive a new nature, you receive a new heart, you receive a new orientation, a new outlook, a new passion, a new commitment, a new project. When you are regenerated, you are restored as children of God. That's what it means to be regenerated. It means you are restored as God's children. You become again what God made Adam and Eve to be, His dear children who mirror His righteousness and holiness and go into the world to rule in in His name and on His behalf. Without regeneration, you can't do one useful thing for God's kingdom, not one. You can do nothing that will be of any eternal value for the kingdom of God. You need to be transformed by the Holy Spirit to be a kingdom worker. But when you are regenerated, then you have to develop a kingdom vision. You see, a lot of people think regeneration is just about them. It's just about me and my soul and my God, and wow, I've got a life with God, and that's all that matters, just me and my God. But in the Bible, in the grand perspective of the biblical narrative, regeneration is so much bigger. Regeneration means you are reborn as God's child, and that implies you are restored to serving God, and not just in your quiet time in the morning or the evening when you pray and read Scripture. No, you are restored to serving God in every aspect of your life. In fact, as a faithful Christian, you should develop the vision that there isn't a single moment of your life that is unrelated to God's kingdom, which He is expanding through you as His child. God God wanted Adam and Eve to fill the world with godliness, with godly culture, and that's what God is asking you also to do. Godly families, godly relationships, godly homes, godly economics. You know, there's there's a godly economic theory and there's an ungodly economic theory. And Christians, as God's image, restored to being His image, have a duty to think economics through from a kingdom perspective and apply that in their lives. A godly trades, metal workers, woodworkers, musicians, farmers, business people, homemakers, doctors, researchers, politicians, students, garbage men, 
ditch diggers, planners, architects, writers, journalists, landscapers, plumbers, electricians, software designers. You see, every single one of those vocations that I just mentioned, every single one of them is related to the kingdom of God. And we have to really be clear about this because, you know, if, if your spirituality is about you and your soul and your private time with God in the morning and the evening, what that means is that most of your life is unconnected to the kingdom of God because, after all, you go to work, you go to school, you go to college, you work on the farm, you build up your business. That takes up most of our hours. And so if you're not able to connect your faith and your, your kingdom vision to all of these facets of life, then really your spiritual life is just this narrow little sliver and it doesn't touch anything else. And that's anathema to Reformed people. Reformed people say Christ is the king of creation. Christ restores His people to their God as His image. Christ restores them to a right relationship with God. And Christ restores them to their office as kingdom workers in the Father's house. It's a beautiful vision. And again, imagine what a world we would have if our driving motivation at all times was soli deo gloria. You know what kind of a world it would be if everyone's motivation was soli deo gloria? It would be the world you can read about in Revelation 21 and 22. Just read it sometime and say that, that's the world we would have had if Adam and Eve had stayed faithful to their calling. And that's the world you can work towards constructively and deliberately in every aspect of your life as reborn kingdom workers. You see, secular people can't give an account of their purpose or their origin, but you can. You can say, I was made by God in His image. Incredible task. And I want to end this afternoon with just encouraging you with this thought. Every single thing that you do in your life, whether it be as small as giving a cup of water to a thirsty man or woman or child, or as great as developing a vast Christian economic theory and implementing it in your country, whatever you do, whether it's a small thing or a little thing, it's a public thing or a private thing, it's something everybody's talking about or nobody's talking about, if you do it in faith as a redeemed child of God, there are going to be repercussions that are eternal. And isn't that awesome? When you go to school this week and you just do your best because that's what it means to be a child of God, then God says, your diligent work at school, I, it doesn't go unnoticed. I am noticing and I am blessing. And furthermore, I'm going to tell you right now, says God, that whatever you do in faith will never be in vain. It will never be for nothing. And so your simple act of giving a cold, cup, a cold cup of water to a thirsty man, your simple act of being faithful in school, your simple act of building up your business in a godly manner to the glory of God, these are things that have eternal repercussions. And the repercussions will just keep spinning out for all eternity. That's how magnificent people are. God desires to use them for things of eternal significance. And so you may go back home tomorrow and go back to your faithful labor as reborn children of God 
and you may know that there will be a reward. And so let's just go to work tomorrow, whether in the home or wherever we work, and let's work prayerfully, and let's work hopefully, let's work energetically, let's work creatively, let's work with all our might and not be lazy and passive and indifferent. Let us work instead for the glory of God the King. Amen.